Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making the show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chadha Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. This episode goes out to all the children of immigrants, whether you're first generation or a second generation, and specifically those who are Desi or from South Asian descent living in the U.S. We have had a very distinct childhood and exposure to our culture, and it's beautifully illustrated in author Preeti Tanna's book, I Married a Coconut. I'm going to call it our very own Eat, Pray, Love because it's this beautiful coming-of-age story where Preeti is straddling two worlds, and she goes to Bali too. (laughs) Preeti Thana is a creative strategist based in New York who thrives on discovering imaginative solutions to both professional and personal challenges with her love for yoga, insatiable curiosity, and global perspective shaped by extensive travel. She imbues her work with mindfulness and connection. Through Preeti's unique blend of critical thinking and innovation, she inspires individuals to embrace their authentic voices and discover a profound sense of belonging. Preeti constantly seeks new avenues of self-expression and meaningful relationships, infusing every interaction with glimmers of joy. Preeti, welcome to That Total Mom Sense, the podcast. Monica, hi. It's so fabulous to meet you. And thank you. What a lovely introduction. Oh, you're so welcome. I want to give a shout out to Nirja Patel of oh, Nirja yeah. PR. She made this happen. Mm-hmm. We love you. Love and you. yes, and I want to also shout out Ami Tucker. We haven't met yet, but I listened to your episode on Tuckered Out and it was epic. <laughs> I love that you two are long lost sisters. We just are. Kind of yeah, like being a fly on the wall, I was like, this is this is awesome. This is electric. This doesn't happen often. So no, I mean, Nirja, what a wonderful meet that happened just out of nowhere. And I love those connections that bring so much to your life. So Nirja brought on me and now you. So yeah. Thank yes. you, Nirja. Yes, yes. And you know, offline we got a chance to catch up. And of course, of course, we have common friends. And so another one is Amita Vyas. Yeah. Which Natasha, if you're listening to this, can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> because uh Natasha is my cousin. She has worked with Amita. She's a mentor to her. And you know, they've worked on Girl Rising and so many different initiatives involving public health and at GW. And Amita went to camp with you. Yes, we met at Hindu Heritage Summer Camp many, many, many years ago. So it's such a small world. But I always think the connections are exactly what they're meant to be in Uh in some way, shape, or form. But I love Amita. Hi, Amita. (laughs) Hi. Yes. Likata. Honestly. Um, Okay. So being Desi and being Mm. raised in the U.S., I feel Mm -hmm. like we are 
caricatures in our own right. And it's, it's really, it's really fun. There's so many inside jokes that we have. What is so inherently desi about you? If you were to just call yourself out on it. Oh, definitely the Bollywood music. But I would also say like, there's so many little gestures that I end up doing throughout the course of the day, you know, with this whole like shaking of the head, like, yes, it's totally fine. It's okay. And then, of course, infusing Gujarati words in in moments of when you're sort of hanging out with your siblings and you it just there are these little words like fata fat or whatever that yeah. just you know, <laughs> you, you know it, all you have to do is say it with your siblings and you and you did. But I think it's definitely the music, the Daisy music all the time. Yes, I love it. I love it. I used a word when I was talking to a friend, Ritu, if you're listening. I said, How come he just doesn't have the uckle? And she was like, Oh, that's I mean, an yeah, excellent. Really, yes, yeah, just like there really is no word to substitute uckle because it's right. like so hard hitting. Um, I, I feel you. And what is your fondest memory as a child? My mother used to work nights as a nurse when we were young. And so on Friday nights when she worked, she would obviously come home and want to sleep. So our dad would take us to Perkins and we would always get the same thing. You know, my brother was got the same pancakes. My sister got potato pancakes and I got the worst combination ever, egg salad and chocolate milk. I still don't know why. But this moment where, you know, my dad was hanging out with us and we it was always a treat to go there. So that's one of the many fun moments that comes to mind now. Yeah. One thing that I do miss, and we spoke about this, is how there wasn't enough, you know, South Asian literature back in the Mm -hmm. day. And Mm -hmm. I remember going to the library to work on whatever, you know, book report we had at the time. And I'd go to the young adult section and see, you know, are there any authors that have Mm -hmm. a Desi name? And there would be one, maybe two with like Mm -hmm. a novel that was a coming of age story. And then I would go back to reading my Anne Rice. <laughs> it, <Right>. just, it was <laughs> like, we need more of us. And you are creating that space now. I think so many are creating that space uh, and have given me the confidence and even curiosity and courage to do it myself. And, you know, I don't know that when I was going to the library, there was even one author. I don't, I didn't see representation anywhere. But I marvel today and when I see, and I think it's so wonderful for the younger generation today to see that you can be in the creative space and you can be South Asian and there is a need and understanding in a market for that type of storytelling. So yeah, for sure. Now let's dive into your book. I married a coconut Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it has a a double meaning. So for those of you who don't know, who are listening, a coconut is like a fun, snarky way of calling out a desi who's brown on the outside and white on the inside. It really does reflect broader issues of cultural identity and assimilation, but you literally married a coconut. (laughs) I did. And I'll tell you the story. And I am honestly telling you, I did not realize that people called Daisy coconuts. I remember Oreo for sure, but it wasn't until after the title was chosen and the book was well into publication that several people started telling me this. But to your point, it works anyway. Yep. However, there is this Indian superstition called Mangal Dosh. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of it, right? And so Mangal means Mars, Dosh means uh, sort of a bad mark in Sanskrit. And the theory is, if you will, that if you're born when Mars is in a certain alignment, you are born with this mangal dosh, this bad luck in relationships specifically. And so you're considered manglic 
And so if you want to marry someone who's non-Munglic, there are certain rituals you should do to remove that bad luck. And one of them is marrying an inanimate object. So people in India marry trees and pots. And I married a coconut so that the coconut or whatever you marry takes on this bad luck and you're free to marry whomever you want. So I literally married a coconut. Mr. Coconut, <laughs> Mr. Coconut is no longer with us, but you know, he was, he was a great groom. Aishwarya Rai married a tree and mm -hmm. it was before her marriage to Abhishek Bachchan. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a frenzy in the news. And I thought this is just, it's so wrong. It's so pathetic <laughs> that everybody cares so much about whether she, she's Munglik or not. Well, I think what's Look, I mean, we have a list of those things, right, that we can go through and say this is ridiculous. But I think the worst part of it is that you're led to believe there's something wrong with you, yes. right? You're led to believe that, you know, there's something wrong. And so you have to get rid of it in order to be married. That yeah. I think that and every individual will interpret that in their own way. For me, it was just one other thing that I couldn't do right in order to live this perfect Indian woman life. Yeah, no, I know. And I'm I'm glad that you wrote about it and, <laughs> you know, shared your story. And it's like, you know, we can look at it from the outside at how facetious it is. So can you give us a brief synopsis of the book without any spoilers, of course? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's South Asian grew up during the time that I did, which, you know, was 80s, 90s, <laughs> understands how difficult it was to be an Indian kid in the U.S. at that time. And while there were many other Indian families here, it was just the beginning of the population. And so I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And my parents, you don't realize this until later, but imagine how difficult it is getting married to someone you don't know and then coming to a different country where you don't speak the language and then having kids and yeah. trying to build a life in America. And there's no doubt our life you know, life, America offered opportunities that India didn't at the time, but I felt isolated. I felt as though there were certain things I had to do at home. And it's not that I didn't like them. I, mean, I love the food. I loved the culture, the music, even the religious portion of it felt felt okay to me. It was when I left the household and was then around other kids, none of whom were Indian, right? And the need to assimilate. So I often felt like they had some secret that I didn't know. They knew how to live a good life. They knew how to be happy. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was trying yeah. to figure this out. So that idea of wanting to be a certain way and what I call the Desi trifecta, which is you know, go to a great school, marry a great Indian husband and have kids. That was my vision and my goal without ever asking if that's what I really wanted, because that's what I assumed everyone would do. And as I got to the age of marriage, all my friends did it. It wasn't as if there were a bunch of us saying, no, 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 I'm going to get right. married, you know. So it really was an exploration for me. What started as asking why, why am I different or what's wrong with me? Even though I hate that question because there's absolutely nothing wrong with anyone, truly, yeah. it led me down a path of discovery of who I really am. And so the story talks about that, what you know, choices I made and, and the experiences I had. And each of those experiences added a little bit 
or I should say, took away from this person that I thought I should be and gave me back myself. So the story is, you know, it's life. It's it's that journey and ultimately how that journey ends out, at least to a certain point in time. You know, and along the way, there's everything that life offers, you know, love and loss. So it's it's just, it's my story. And, and there's so many themes, I think, that will resonate with people, which is yeah. amazing because yes. I never thought it would, you know, as a young kid. So no spoilers, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah. It, it's really just impeccably done. And I think the fact that you use your name as the main character, mm-hmm. we immediately identify with you mm-hmm. and the way that you fleshed out, you know, the storylines of Shalini, Steve, Vin and Meher, Marco, Ara, <laughs> like, oh, it's just, it, it's so reminiscent of what it was like to be a South Asian diasporic adolescent uh, in the U.S. So Uh, it's funny you mentioned the names because obviously they're not the real names. Definitely for the earlier part of the book, (laughs) the later part of the book um, are real names, but or for the most part. But when I was writing, I had to keep a list in front of me, (laughs) like right, right, because I myself had to learn them as new names. So yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. (laughs) I know it's like who was that that I named him again? Exactly. It's great. And I um, really enjoyed the 80s and 90s references mm-hmm. because I remember, you know, growing up uh, watching Peter Jennings, you know, there were just, there were so many Depeche Mode when you had your first crush, like yeah. there were so many different facets to what it was like growing up. And I think for you, was it cathartic because you reflected on this time of your life and you openly shared your crushes and mm-hmm. first few dates and boyfriends that we had, mm-hmm. like it, oh, it's, it's almost like going back and rereading an old diary. I love yeah, that. Yeah. It was cathartic in many ways. A lot of the early, many of the earlier stories are based on journal entries. So I was able to tap into the feeling of the time and read what I had written in terms of my reaction to some of these experiences. I also noted how incredibly thoughtful I was and philosophical and wondered why those lessons didn't stay with me <laughs> my entire life. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I'd be like, oh, you knew this when you were 15. It was cathartic in that way. And also later on, it was really wonderful to write about my dad because it helped me move through the process of grief, which I know we'll talk about later. So, yeah. um, you know, when I, when I typed the last word, it was everything and more for me. It was never about anyone else. And I kind of tied up loose ends in my mind and gave myself the grace to remember how resilient, whether I meant to be or not, and how life can surprise you. Mm-hmm. What did you feel you learned about yourself when dating a non-Indian? Because so many of us have. <laughs> it's it's just eye-opening in different ways. You know, it's so interesting how you turn inward and you're like, huh, that's that's different from what we do at home or... Yeah. So what were those things for you? I know that I dated non-Indians because I wanted to assimilate, right? And I wanted people to see that I too was worthy of whomever they were dating. You know, I I refer to people, you know, fair-skinned friends, right? I, I wanted to be accepted. And I always assumed if I dated someone that that would be part of it. Of course, the rest of it was true. I did have crushes. I did have feelings, what I found most significant, and I wrote about this in my journal, is that I would try and be a person that I thought they wanted to be. And so it was 
interesting to see how much I would shift my likes, dislikes, and once again, move away from who I really am in order to appease someone else. And I think I kind of went through a period, I don't know about you, but I kind of went through a period where then I only wanted to date Indian men because then it was, you know, I I understood why later you understand <laughs> more than that. Yeah. It was always yeah, about yeah. giving up a little bit of myself in order to be someone that they wanted me to be. For me, I got sucked into the brown town crowd <laughs> like early, early on <laughs> yeah. from, I would say, junior year of high school onwards. I don't know. It's I don't regret anything, but I do feel like it was a little bit of a myopic view. Mm-hmm. And just because I wasn't popular with, you know, the jocks and the cheerleaders in school, I was like, you know, I feel I was still well liked. Um, everyone knew me and, you know, loved that I had my National Honor Society mm-hmm. like peeps, you know, but it just I I just felt like I identified more with Indians. And then once you're down that path, that's exactly what you seek in college. And then it's like, oh man, there's this whole other world that I didn't open up to, you know? Um, It it can go either way, right? Kind of go. I mean, I, that was most of the year. And then I went to summer camp where I was embedded with all South Asian brown kids and I loved every moment of it. And there were no other Indian kids in my high school that I became friendly with. So I didn't have that same experience. And then I went to college and it was all Indian. And then it became a big Indian fest of, yeah. <laughs> of, of right, like you said, brown town community. But I think it just mm-hmm. depends on who you were and where who was around you, really, in terms of how you assimilated. or didn't. Exactly. No, it's true. And let's talk about the... Hindu heritage uh, summer okay. camp. It has a really prominent part in your story. Mm-hmm. I just can't wait to send my kids. Oh, mm-hmm. listen, you know, the world is different, right? So there's obviously more representation today. But back then, you know, my I think my parents were worried about us becoming too American. And so this this camp, and I talk about it in the book on how it was started, you know, they kind of thought, okay, we're going to send them to summer camp. So they, you know, keep their culture and their identity. And it was the best thing that they had done for us that they've ever, I mean, so many things, but when I was at camp, I belonged. I wasn't different from anyone, at least not based on the color of my skin. I had friends. I was even desired, right? My first crush was at Hindu Heritage Summer Camp. So completely the opposite experience of what I went through throughout the school year. And it's what we all, you know, every human wants to feel as though they are a part of someone, something. Mm -hmm. They don't want to feel excluded. This idea that we want to be seen and heard drives so much of our behavior. So camp is where I was seen and heard. And in addition, I learned so many interesting skills. The program itself, you know, was taught by a bunch of Swamis who had converted to Hinduism, who were not Indian. Right. So I remember the first day going to camp and thinking, hold on, (laughs) it's like they're not Indian. They're going to teach us all this Indian stuff. Brilliant. You know, I learned Sanskrit and philosophy, nature and survival. There was a program called Voxity where they would do public speaking. And if you said, um, they would ring a bell. I'd like to tell you that I understood that. But I say, um, all the time, like, wait, you went to those Voxity classes, uh, group therapy where you were sitting across from a friend and the Swami would say, oh, is this, you know, your sister? Do you want to tell your sister something? You know, the the ability to process emotions while learning about your culture, while learning Sanskrit and religion and yoga. I, I can't say enough about it. I do think it it saved me from wow. probably a road that I, um, I would have gone down. 
because there's only so long yeah. that you can feel right outside. So yeah, it's great. Send your kids. Oh my gosh. And that's where I met Amita mm-hmm. and so many other wonderful, beautiful humans that are doing you know amazing things in the world. So highly recommend. Oh, that's great. I mean, walk us through the logistics. So it's in the Poconos and what are the age groups for the kids? And then you drop them off and say bye-bye. No, well, so yeah. it's not in the Poconos anymore. Unfortunately, um, it's moved to Rochester, but one of the okay. original Swamis, uh, Devi Parvati is still running the camp. And it seems as though they have the same programming mostly, but you drop your kids off. They're two week sessions. Um, I think they're four sessions. And I think the youngest age might be eight or nine. And then it goes all the way up to 16 or 17, where you can be a counselor. And in between, you can be a karma yogi scholar. So that is, you know, going to camp and then helping. So you're part of a group that does service back for the community of camp, you know, cleaning the bathhouses, cooking, all that kind of stuff. So there's different levels, different age groups. And I see my niece and nephew every time they come back from camp. It's a beautiful sight. You almost don't believe, you don't believe, A, how much time has gone by, but that this legacy continues and it's so beneficial. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. I love how immersive it is. For me, my mom was very, very involved in a school. Um, This was in Maryland, uh, Bethesda, called Mm -hmm. the India School. Mm -hmm. And it's been around, you know, I want to say like, 45 years, 50 years now. But that's where at age five, I learned Hindi, uh, mm-hmm. Hindustani vocal music and Kuchipuri and continued for 15 years. And it was so instrumental in the arts that I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. I still dance. I feel like that foundation of Indian classical um, has made me appreciate, you know, all forms of dance so much more as an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell which rag um, is being sung mm-hmm. and love teaching my kids budgeons. And it was because my mom was fervent about it. She was right. just like, you know, you, you're going to go. And I went kicking and screaming and didn't want to go every Sunday. But I think that's something that sets us apart in a way. And Mm -hmm. I want to be able to recreate that for my kids because it's not just a blindly following, like, you know, through rote memory, like, you know, uh, learn the arthi, learn Gaiti Mantra, and then we're (laughs) we're not going to discuss it, you know? Right. right. and, And you're all set. You're done. Yeah. I'd rather dissect facets to the Gita and explain you know, the talks that happened between Krishna Bhagwan and Arjun, you know, during the Mahabharata, I want the kids to have a deeper understanding of that. Mm -hmm. And it really does fall upon the parent to have an interest, right, and then to pass it on. And so how can you um, help kind of galvanize this generation of parents to, Mm -hmm. to reconnect if you haven't already? Mm-hmm. And then pass down something to this next generation. You know, um, this is conjecture mostly, right? And from my own childhood, not from the experience of being a parent, but isn't it interesting when you said, uh, as opposed to being told that we have to do art theater, that we have to do these things. And so when you're told, yeah. and it doesn't matter if you like it, when you're told, it feels like you need to defy, right? And it doesn't right. feel as though you want to do it. And I think the one guiding 
point, this is for all all relationships, honestly, is this idea of curiosity and communication. You know, you sense when someone else is not interested in what you're saying or doesn't want to do what you're suggesting. And so ask why. Doesn't mean that they're don't they don't have to come to Arthi or they don't have to do what you what you want, but just this idea of asking, well, why not? What what's what's the pushback? And I think it puts the other person in a position to answer and maybe think, okay, well, I don't really have a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I, I I think many conversations with my parents would have gone differently if they picked up or sensed on an emotion that maybe wasn't positive and asked, why not? You know, and and of right. course they did in certain experiences, but not not when it came to we have to go to the temple, we have to do this, we have to, you know, not lose our culture, not lose our language. I remember doing yoga teacher training, and the teacher told us a story about a, a monkey who gets his hand stuck in a coconut, mm-hmm. and he gets his hand stuck because at the at the empty coconut shells in the very bottom there's like a little sweet piece of coconut, and he's so desperate to get it that his hand gets stuck, and so finally he realizes that if he just lets his hand go the hand comes out with the sweet piece. And I always think of this story when anyone is resistant, you know, ask why and let go a little and you never know, you know. Exactly. No, that's so great. And I mean, we can't, you know, fault our parents for this because that's how they learned. And they kind of were like, we're going to copy paste because we're in a whole new society and surroundings that, you know. And and we're going to stick to what we know, right? And that's worked. Yeah, we all do that. Yeah. Now let's talk about their life lessons that they've imparted on you. Is there something that really sticks out that you're like, this is just how I live my life now? Yeah, there are two. One I I detested as a kid, and that's the idea of discipline. You know, my father, I mean, now we talk about discipline as one of a great, you know, a great asset and a great skill, but this idea of consistency and discipline was something that he enforced very greatly. And I wouldn't have said to you when I was a kid that I would have any interest in that. And it's served to be one of my most useful, you know, beautiful skills. And the other thing is they always were kind to everyone. It didn't matter, even if there were they were on the phone trying to get, you know, a customer service and the woman wasn't understanding their name, you know, in in every situation. They, they always said, you know, just be the bigger person, treat them with respect. It doesn't matter what they do. You know, it matters what you do. And so I think, I think those were the two that really, but yeah, that's wonderful. Mm. And is there a mom sense moment that, you know, your mom had that you're like, Ooh, that was spot on. (laughs) So um, she very, when we were very young, went back to school for nursing I mentioned she worked nights and her whole, you know, at the time she would say, it's really, you know, important. I don't, I don't need to, but it's really important for you to be financially independent. And that I thought was an interesting aspect of our dynamic because I work, I saw her work very hard and I used to think, why does she, why is she doing this? You know, it's, it's difficult. And of course, you know, uh, another income is certainly helpful and and it was very instrumental, but the other thing I noticed, which I don't know if she meant in part, was she created a space for herself. She created a space that gave her an identity and friendships that still are around today 
where she could be who she really is. Because so often in households, especially back then in my parents, the dynamic is, you know, the father or the husband makes all the rules and then the mom is sort of, you know, goes along for the ride. We won't get into too much of the generational sort of practices, but I thought that was remarkable. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that she, but that was to me the moment where I thought, okay, well, she's cool. Like she's gone out and done this thing. So I would say, yeah, making space for yourself, regardless of the circumstance. And of course, financial independence is always lovely. Yes. Yes. And I want to just touch on your dad. I know still feels very raw having Mm -hmm. lost him and, you know, given the phase of life that so many of us are in, mm-hmm. we all are going to be faced with this reality of losing a parent. Mm-hmm. In my case, my mom um, was diagnosed with dementia and my sister and I have done so much research into you know, exactly what she has, primary progressive lipogenic aphasia mm-hmm. and how that's kind of causing you know, a decline. And mm-hmm. I, I think of it all the time, as morbid as it is. I mean, we're kind of living through this, what's called a long goodbye, Mm -hmm. but eventually I know the goodbye is going to happen. So what can you share from your experience that can kind of be encouraging for us on our own journey with our parents? Well, first of all, Kanika, I'm so sorry to hear this. And I know it's incredibly difficult to see parents decline. My heart is with you and your sister. And anything I can do, just please do let me know. One of the, um, you know, look, you have to communicate and talk to them and spend time with them, you know, and you probably do that. But I think if you know, I will be honest and say, you know, my father had Parkinson's. That was his um, ultimate, you know, reason for passing. And the decline is very long. But in the four year span from when he was diagnosed to when, he um, ultimately left uh, this world. I tried very hard to spend time with him and talk to him about his life Mm -hmm. and ask him questions from when he was younger. And there was a period of time where he stopped talking, uh, I would say about nine months before he passed, or he he would answer, but he wasn't as, he wasn't communicating really. But when I asked him for help on something that I knew how to do, he would suddenly perk up and say, oh, you have to do this, this, and this. And so who they were as parents, you know, and the things that happen, you know, the things that they miss or what really drove them, I would just engage, you know, I'm going to assume that you're supporting and doing all the things like you said, right? You're researching. And of course, she raised beautiful daughters, I'm sure, that are supporting her throughout this journey. But for anyone else, you know, who's confused or or maybe someone else is caring for the parent, just talk to them, spend time with them and ask them about their life. We stop asking them what they loved and about their own childhood or what moments in their life uh, impacted them. And once again, it's they're being seen and heard. And I think that population, we often forget that everyone needs that. And so that's that's my advice. I mean, there's so much other tactical advice that goes along with aging parents, but that would be my guiding one. Mm, I love that. Thank you. And, you know, you are very much your father's daughter <laughs> and he would be so proud of the legacy you're carrying on. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, do you have a daily mantra 
you tell yourself that you're like, this is going to help tide me through, especially on those hard days? I don't know if it's a mantra one specifically, but I am, you know, very much into my meditation practice. And there are a bunch of Sanskrit shlokas or that I, I will say every morning to Ganesh, you know, and several others. But there is an ultimate knowing that I have now that everything will be okay. And so I tend Mm -hmm. to sit quietly and remind myself that all is well. It seems silly to say, you know, you have gratitude. Of course, we all do. We all get up every, but I really try and, you know, live in the moment. And and when you lose someone, especially a parent, and you come and you build your life up after, because you have to start over. No one tells you that either, but you have to, because you're no longer the same person. Yeah. There's a sense of calm and peace of of knowing that you can move through life in a certain way. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. It doesn't mean there aren't days when I don't want to get out of bed. But there's a knowing that a you know our time here is so short, and b you know all's well. You you, yeah. you can you can find the answers and you can you can figure it out. Yes, yes. I I would love for you to recite any of the. You know, shloka, as you say, I, I oh, love wow. hearing them. Yeah, if there's <laughs> any that come to mind. Yeah, there's the shuklam bararam vishnum shashi varnam chatur bhujam prasannavadanam jaya sarvavigno pashantaya. That is the opening sort of Ganesh puja, if you will. And I actually can't believe I did that for you. <laughs> I love it. I, I love that. I have such an appreciation because same for me. I mean, I say... And it's it's certain shlokas or bhajans that are again so nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I, I remember learning it from my nani. So when I say it, I'm back to that eight-year-old kid again, and yes. it makes me feel a certain strength in those words. So it's, that's it's, why I do it. <laughs> it infuses you with just a knowing. Um, yeah. We used to at camp sing, uh, do the three ambakam, uh, you know, before yes. we ate three ambakam ijamahe. And for, I mean, we still do, my mom still does it. Sometimes it's hard for me to do it with my mom because it was my dad's biggest thing. You cannot eat until we say, did you say the prayer? Did you say the prayer? Wow. So, um, but it, it's, in, it's so incredible how these, well, music in and of itself or any sort of rhythmic you know, the shlokas, bhajans, whatever it is, it's it's also been a savior. The ability to transport you exactly to where you were when you learned where, it is yes. remarkable. Yeah. Yes. And since you're such an avid traveler, mm. um, what is one of your most favorite places to travel? Yeah. I mean, it's similar to asking me my favorite pizza in New York, which is very, <laughs> you know, depends on the neighborhood, but Bombay is up there for sure. Bombay yes. is home really for me, my second home, I definitely will retire there. But just yesterday in my meditation, I thought of Portugal and I went to Portugal in October of 2019. And so I, you know, went through the pictures and posted a reel, but uh, Portugal is just stunning. It's such a beautiful place. Any, but any, you can put me on a plane and send me anywhere. And I will tell you during that trip that it is, that is my favorite place. I, the, 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 the joy of travel is like no other, but if you were, if you asked me to pick one, I would say India and Bombay for sure. Oh, I love it. No. And I saw that Portugal reel. So, oh <laughs> my God, breathtaking. Yeah. It was a good views. times. My goodness. And then lastly, where can my listeners find you and support you and buy your book? 
You can find me uh, on Instagram at here is Preeti. You can buy the book anywhere. Uh, I have an order of preference, you know, bookshop.org, uh, which supports local booksellers is great. Barnes and Noble, wonderful. Of course, you can buy it on Amazon, anywhere you buy books online in any country. So yeah, that's that's where you can find me. I'm also on LinkedIn at Preeti Tana. That's that's my uh, footprint for now. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yeah. that's so exciting. Thank you so much, Preeti. This was a joy. I found a new friend and I am here to support you on wherever your journey leads. And thanks for sharing your story for generations <laughs> to feel seen, understood, and heard. So thank you for that. Kanika, thank you. It was such a pleasure. I too have a new friend. How exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Talk to you soon. I hope you had fun tuning in to my chat with author Preeti Tanna. Preeti, it was a joy to get to know you. I can't believe we have so much in common, including common family friends. It is such a small world. And if you are an avid podcast listener, definitely check out Tuckered Out with Ami Tucker. She had Preeti on the show as well. And same thing, they are soul sisters. Nirja, thank you for making this interview happen. Nirja Patel is of Nirja PR, and she is truly a liaison for all things in our South Asian community, especially in the New York tri-state area. Go buy Preeti's book wherever books are sold. I Married a Coconut. I love having this book, and I can't wait till my kids are old enough to read it. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review That's Total Mom Sense wherever you listen. It helps a ton with the algorithms. I have a guide on my website if you need help with leaving a review. And you can leave any suggestions or guests that you're dying to have on the show. I love to hear from you. You can email me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com or log on to my site, that's totalmomsense.com. You can follow me on all the platforms at Kanika Chadda Gupta. I post YouTube shorts and highlights, and I'm very active on Instagram. Same handle. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time. That's total mom sense.